Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for a classic episode of the show. This one is about the MOA of New Zealand, uh, one, of your, one of your great loves of the past year. Yeah, this one was really, uh, this was a really fun topic to get into. This is going to be a two-parter. Um, I, I, I will point out that we didn't, one thing we didn't really get into the, in these episodes were changes in our understanding of the sort of the stature of the MOA, exactly how it stood and how tall it would actually be. Uh, we ended up addressing that, I think, in a subsequent listener mail episode. Uh, but uh, but, but I, I think everything still holds up. Uh, I don't think any um, any MOA experts or MOAs uh, uh, had any any other corrections other than to, to point out that we, we didn't really touch on that particular issue in these uh, initial two episodes. Wait, so basically the deal is that may, maybe the MOA was more often bent over forwards rather than, rather than standing up straight? Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, it's one of those... Um, those situations that come up from time to time in our understanding of fossils, you know, uh, like it's one thing to put the the bones together, but another to actually uh, display them or position them uh, in in a way that would be in keeping with the actual stature of the animal. Uh, for instance, we, we see this in our changing understanding of T-Rexes over time. You know, you look back at the old illustrations of T-Rexes and they were a lot more uh, vertical, a lot more erect. But if you look at more recent uh, depictions of how a T-Rex would stand, you know, it's more horizontal. It's more in keeping with the way a chicken carries itself. Okay, we'll keep that in mind, but otherwise, uh, let's let's head in. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And to uh, introduce today's episode, I thought maybe we should begin by reading a poem. Robert, are you game? I'm game for a little little poetry. In fact, it's not just poetry, it's moetry. <laughs> I did not make that joke in my head yet, but maybe because I'm not as perverse as you. <laughs> this is by the New Zealand poet Alan Kurnow. This was uh, originally published in 1949, and it's called The Skeleton of the Great Moa in Canterbury Museum, Christchurch. The skeleton of the moa on iron crutches broods over no great waste, a private swamp, was where this tree grew feathers once that hatches its dusty clutch and guards them from the damp. Interesting failure to adapt on islands, taller but not more fallen than I, who come bone to his bone, peculiarly New Zealand's, the eyes of children flicker round this tomb. Under the skylights, wonder at the huge egg, found in a thousand pieces, pieced together, but with less patience than the bones that dug in time deep shelter against the ocean weather. Not I, some child, born in a marvelous year, will learn the trick of standing upright here. You can find that poem, by the way, in the 1979 anthology, an anthology of 20th century New Zealand poetry. And uh, yeah, I really love the, the cadence of that poem. And also, uh, I feel like it effectively captures the, the, the weird beauty of these reassembled skeleton remains one sees of the mighty Moa. You know, we just did Marianne Moore in the paper Nautilus. This is another poem like that. I love a good poem that genuinely ponders biology, uh, like this deals with the evolutionary adaptation of the Moa, the flightless birds of New Zealand uh, and and the idea of learning the trick of standing upright. Yeah. Now, this is going to be a fun couple of, of episodes. I'm really excited about these episodes. I think the, the MOA 
is one of the, the things that's really keeping me going right now. We're getting to research, <laughs> uh, read about the MOA, envision the MOA. Uh, it, no, no matter what, where, I don't know where you are out there as you're listening to this, where you are in your previous understanding of, of the MOA and other flightless birds, uh, but this is, a, this is a wonderful and weird story that has, has, has a, number of, a number of connections to things we've talked about in the past, uh, but, but also some, some new angles. We're going to be talking about evolution. We're going to be talking about uh, first contact between uh, man and beast. It's, uh, it's going to be a fun ride. And there's no better place to start a fun ride than in New Zealand, the land of avian decadence. That's right. And, and the place where, where the mammal is truly debased. That's right. Because you, I know obviously the rise of mammals is one of evolution's most celebrated victory stories, right? Uh, because in, in part because we are, of course, mammals ourselves. And there's perhaps a sense of, of the gods and the primordial titans when we consider the age of the dinosaurs that came before us in our own mammalian age uh, that we have you know, ascended uh, in now. Well, yeah, I mean, it, there's very much a case of uh, when you look at the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event mm-hmm. that caused the demise of the non avian dinosaurs, uh, it's quite clear that their loss was our gain. Yes, but it, w- it wasn't only our gain. It was also the gain of uh, of birds. And we often neglect the just the exceptional dominance of birds. Uh, for theirs is the, the, the legacy of, uh, of the dinosaur. And then they, they remain highly successful and widespread to this day. They remain masters of the air, frequent masters of the water, and sometimes masters of the land as well. Now, why would birds be the masters of the land? Like, they've got the air. That seems so much better than the land. Why even bother with the land? Well, of course— the, the obvious answer there is that is that to be a master of the of the air requires a great deal of energy, mm-hmm. and if you don't have to fly around, uh, you quickly find reasons not to. <laughs> uh, evolutionarily speaking, of course. Well, so if we're talking about mammals and avian dinosaurs or birds, mm-hmm. why exactly was it that the loss of the dinosaurs was the gain of these other clades? Well, because suddenly you have all of these uh, these, these niches in the uh, in the in, in in the in the environment that open up. Uh, so that suddenly a bird can. Can, uh, can occupy, or various you know, creatures have the ability to occupy, mammals included. But this is where we see the, the emergence of a number of these different flightless birds. This is where we see the emergence of the terror birds and the demon ducks. Uh, and, and we'll get into some more examples of flightless birds as we go. Uh, but yeah, to, to be sure, we still have some amazing flightless land birds with us today. And some of them are, are quite enormous. Uh, the largest, of course, is the ostrich. There are two species uh, remain. There was a third, the Asian ostrich, that went extinct roughly 6,000 years ago. Yeah, the two extant species are the common ostrich and the Somali ostrich, and they're both native to Africa. Yeah, and I sometimes – I feel like we sometimes overlook – how cool ostriches are! Mm-hmm. I find that at zoos, they, you know, they, for one thing, it's a zoo habitat, and and you know, it's it's if you're seeing an ostrich in a fenced-in area, but then sometimes the ostrich is in there with a giraffe, which seems <laughs> particularly unfair because the giraffe, of course, is the is is the tallest um, extant uh, mammal that we have, and uh, it feels kind of like a dirty trick to showcase the world's the world's tallest extant bird with the tallest mammal, which towers over it. Right. It's like I'm trying to show off my muscles, but then you put me next to a gorilla. Yeah. 
But but we have some other wonderful examples of flightless birds uh, um, uh, elsewhere. Uh, for instance, we have uh, emus, which are very fascinating. If you get a chance to just look at an emu, just watch an emu as it um, goes about its business, uh, it's it's remarkable. Uh, the cassowary is one of my favorites. Mine too. There's a cassowary here at the Atlanta Zoo. Yes, Cecil. Uh, Cecil, the, mm-hmm. the cassowary, who we, we've talked uh, on the show before with, uh, with our friend Jason Ward here in town yeah. uh, about Cecil the cassowary, who... Uh, uh, I remember Jason telling us that its dung is very, like, fragrant and kind yeah. of smells of fruit, even though it is – I mean, not to demonize animals, but when you get up close to it, it is a horrifying beast. Like, yeah. it's beautiful. Its colors are beautiful. It has the blue and the red and the black feathers. It's a gorgeous animal. But also, if you look at its foot, its foot looks like – a puppet from a monster movie. Yes. You know, it is it is just a killing thing. It's got these claws and this scaly, scabby skin. Uh, oh, that's a tongue twister. But yeah, yeah, look at a cassowary up close sometime if you just want to be terrified and awed at nature. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, they 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 can they can prove quite uh, deadly if you you know the human comes into to close contact with them and they they be, begin engaging in de- defensive uh, uh, behavior. Oh yeah, don't try to look at their feet up close if there is not a uh, like barrier between you. Yeah, of course we have other uh, flightless birds to consider. One of the more amazing ones, of course, is the kiwi of New Zealand. Um, the uh, the nocturnal uh, ground bird. All of these birds are what we call ratites, a diverse group of flightless birds that were widespread across the scattered fragments of the supercontinent Gondwana. Uh, and uh, th- and the, though their dom- dominance has waned uh, over time, uh, certainly with the, the rise of Homo sapiens, we still have all these various examples that still uh, remain today. Yeah, and you find you find large flightless birds. Well, actually, large and small flightless birds everywhere from. New Zealand to South America. Yeah, I know, and that's without even getting into the, the the obvious example of just other flightless birds. There's also the penguin, yeah. of course. Uh, but uh, well, well, this raises the question: Why do we have flightless birds all over the place like this? Well, uh, in the 1990s, there was a wonderfully titled theory. Moa's Ark, uh, which uh, which assumed that all of these ratites descended from a common ancestor. So, in other words, the, the idea here is that a a flighted ancestor became flightless on Gondwana, and then as the supercontinent split, this one flightless ancestor uh, diverged into all these different flightless species. Okay, so you get one instance of these birds descending from an ancestor and becoming flightless and then the flightless one goes all over the place and then there's continental drift. Right. The supercontinent splits up and the flightless descendants of that one ancestor all go off into different places and evolve in different directions and they become everything from the ostrich to the kiwi to the moa. Right. But w- one of the, the issues with this uh, this idea is that this would mean we'd expect something, we'd expect say, in New Zealand. We'd expect the moa and the kiwi to be closely related to each other. Uh, we'd expect that uh, any any uh, of these ratites that live close together would also be closely related. But subsequent DNA studies have revealed that this was not the case. Instead of moa's ark, the model seems to be one of numerous cases of flighted to flightless evolution around the world. So again, convergent evolution. Yeah. Uh, th- this repeated instance of a flighted bird 
evolving into a bird that doesn't fly, which seems so strange of a, of a choice for evolution to make. I mean, not to personify it too much, but, but what is the advantage there? Uh, I think we alluded to this earlier. One of the main theories about this is that it's an energy advantage. If a bird doesn't need to fly, mm-hmm. then it doesn't need to make huge pectoral muscles capable of flapping wings that can get it into the air. And if it doesn't need to make those big muscles, it can spend that energy on something else or it can just survive on less food. Yeah. And, uh, and it can have just like a smaller uh, – it can have less of a basal metabolic rate. And we've, we've talked on the show pretty recently about birds having a pretty high BMR. Right. So, uh, so yeah, th- this is basically the reason why we see the rise of these various flightless birds in, in uh, you know, all corners of the, the, the world, really. But then, of course, a number of them end up falling away. And, of course, we'll get into the details of, of, uh, of the, the, the fall of the moa in these episodes. Uh, in the case of the moa and in the case of the elephant bird, uh, it's, it's the encountering human beings that, uh, that did the trick. Yes. Uh, once again, human beings seem to be a sort of uh, anomaly in the fossil record in in the evolutionary story. Once we enter the picture, things tend to go haywire. Right. Uh, But another question is, coming back to what we were just talking about, like the uh, energy considerations in losing flight. So it it is clear that you can save a lot of energy by not being a flying bird if you don't need to fly. But in what case would a bird not need to fly? Shouldn't flying always help a bird to survive? Well, basically, it comes down to, like, like we said earlier, the, the death of the dinosaurs creating these these holes for it, these niches for it in the environment. Mm-hmm. You need a place where, I mean, to, to use a very simple uh, and even tacky metaphor here for birds, they need a place to land, mm-hmm. uh, a, a place that's not already occupied by, say, a highly successful dinosaur or a highly, highly successful mammal. And so there, there are corners of the world, uh, you know, other shards of Gondwana, where the the, the, the idea of a kingdom of the birds remained at least partially unchallenged by mammalian usurpers. Like nothing came, nothing was already there to keep the bird from landing and nothing uh, came up to, uh, to uh, erase it from the ecosystem. Um, for instance, there's the island of Madagascar, which enjoyed something like 88 million years of isolation during which it fostered various forms of lemur, as well as the massive elephant bird, uh, not only a ratite, but uh, often considered the largest uh, known ratite to ever walk the earth. But then there's also far-flung New Zealand, uh, which enjoyed an amazing degree of freedom as well from the Mammalian Revolution, well until roughly um, 1300 CE with the arrival of human beings. Now, that's not to, to say they were completely free of mammals. Uh, I believe they're two extinct primitive uh, mammals known only as the St. Uh, Bathens mammal uh, that are present in the, in, in the uh, fossil record from the, the Miocene. Uh, otherwise, the only way for a mammal to get to New Zealand was to fly there or to swim there. <laughs> So you'd have this huge island that's got birds on it but does not have any large mammalian predators. It doesn't have any lions. It doesn't have any wolves. It doesn't have any foxes, anything for a bird to need to fly and escape from. Yeah. So if you don't have a predator you have to fly and escape from, why even keep making wings? Exactly. You just – you land and you start filling those niches. There's no buffalo. There are no horses. Again, no wolves. And then the – as far 
far as the other mammals, the ones that have swam there, I mean, we're talking about seals, sea lions, whales out in the waters around New Zealand, and they, they're, they're, they're not going to uh, invade the forest anytime soon. Uh, they're doing just fine. And then uh, other than that, we have bats. Bats flew to New Zealand, uh, where we do see uh, we do see an interesting case where um, where uh, the, the bats that come to New Zealand end up spending more time on the the ground than you see elsewhere in the world. Uh, particularly, the New Zealand lesser short-tailed bat, which spends a lot of its time foraging on the forest floor, crawling around, um, basically taking on a far more terrestrial role than bats employ elsewhere. Again, this would make sense as an evolutionary adaptation if there's just not a lot. Lot of stuff to worry about on the ground like there is everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, we mentioned the kiwi earlier. Like the kiwi is an example of a ground-dwelling bird. Uh, you know, it, it, it goes around at night. It eats things like worms. It, it, but there's nothing, there's nothing like a mole. There, there, there are no moles to fill that niche in the environment. Uh, therefore, the kiwi is, is taking that role on, mm-hmm. even though it is a, a bird. Now you do see some cases where reptiles or gastropods are also, uh, you know, filling in these uh, these niches in the environment in New Zealand. But for the most part, the birds are the real stars here. Um, we mentioned the kiwi, and there are there are numerous other examples of flightless birds in New Zealand. There's uh, there are various extant species that we still find, such as the, the South Island takahe, and then there's also a, a, a flightless bird known as the the weka. But the most amazing examples are the nine uh, now extinct species of Moa, uh, including uh, the, the giant Moa that used to, uh, to, to to exert their dominance over New Zealand. Well, maybe we should take a break, and then when we come back, we can talk about this giant bird. All right, we're back. So we just introduced the character of the Moa. This, uh, I guess we alluded to a little bit earlier, but uh, this giant flightless bird that used to inhabit New Zealand— that's right. Uh, yeah, there were nine different nine different species are known to exist. There was the upland moa, the little bush moa, and I have to stress <laughs> the little bush moa was still uh, 1.3 meters or 4.3 feet tall. Uh, so it's still a sizable bird. Wait, is it now? Is it the little bush moa or the little bush moa? Uh, the little bush moa, sometimes okay. just referred to as the bush moa. Okay, yeah, I was so, just trying to think. I mean, is it like a bush moa that's little, or is it being compared to a little bush or something? Oh, I think it basically lived in the bush. Uh, okay. The bush moa would have uh, would have lived more in the rainforest. Okay, so essentially, the moa is so successful. You have all you have like nine different varieties in different parts of New Zealand, uh, different sizes. But the two largest were Dinornis robustus, which means robust, strange bird, and Dinornis novazolindiae. Uh, so we're largely you know, going to be talking about those two because they were the biggest. Uh, we're talking about moa that reached uh, heights of 3.6 meters or 12 feet tall. That's with the neck outstretched and uh, there with, with estimated weights of 230 kilograms or 510 pounds. So these were, these were sizable critters. Yeah. They looked rather like an enormous emu. So if you've seen an emu in, per, in person, you have like a good starting point for imagining them. Uh, like a wide, kind of shaggy, feathery body on long, uh, you know, lethal-looking legs with these, you know, great claws at the end. And a long, snaking neck, you know, almost like a... Like a like an like an elephant's trunk uh, okay. that leads up to a comparatively small head. Yes, in the skeletons, it's almost like a comically small looking head compared yeah. to 
the giganticness of its body. Uh, but so another one thing I would wonder about, of course, is okay. Well, we know it's probably flightless, but what does it do with its wings? Does it have little little like T Rex arm talons up there, or what's happening with the wings? Well, that's that's typically what you expect, right? Flightless birds typically have at least vestigial wings, little shrunken remnants uh, of their long neglected flying limbs. Uh, sometimes, as with an ostrich, there's still some sort of a use for these wings. The ostrich uses its its uh, its little wings there to stabilize them when they run. Uh, and to aid in courtship displays, even though they're you know they, they they do not produce flight at all. Right. Well, I mean, you can see uh, some birds that are thought to be flightless actually do kind of glide near to the ground. Some like chickens can mm-hmm. use their wings to you know kind of glide around near the ground. Right. And but, but I mean, failing that, like sometimes there's some purpose, even if it's a display, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if there's not a purpose, you might expect to find, as with other flightless birds, to find just some vestigial remain uh, of that limb. You know, like little bones or something. But the moa doesn't even have vestigial wings. There are no little, not like even like shrunken bones uh, that are left over. There is no trace of their wings at all. They have simply been erased through their evolution. That's creepy. It, it's yeah, it's amazing. It's 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 one of the very few known creatures to possess only two limbs. Uh, the only other creatures that I could run across that were in a similar situation at all are the the Mexican mole lizard and the uh, Serenidae salamanders. Uh, both of these are cases where a creature has lost its hind legs and re- retains its uh, its front limbs. But you won't find any mammals that are like this. Even the hind uh, legs of the great whales remain in, in vestigial form. Um, no, you'll find no other birds, no dinosaurs, just these nine species of giant land birds. Even the T-Rex with its you know, famously small um, you know, forelimbs. So we've, we've discussed the various theories for why they kept even those, those tiny limbs on the show before. Uh-huh. But even the T-Rex still has little, little arms. Uh, the moa has no arms, no, <laughs> no wings at all. It's just such a strange creature. The other day I was imagining it as a kind of uh, biological unicycle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's so weird. It's it's like some of the illustrations look oddly huggable, but you would. It has no arms. It has no yeah. wings. Like there's nothing. <laughs> I I kept thinking like why does this why does this um, amaze me so? And I think part of it is that when we think about animals, this, I've noticed when when children think about animals, they often embody the animal. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to like act like the animal. Uh, and, you know, pantomime and, and so forth. Uh, Which is a fascinating tendency, by the way. Yeah, like, yeah. Why do they naturally do that? But I think even if we're not, like, actually moving our bodies around when we look at an animal, there's part of us that, like, puts ourselves in its body, and we imagine our limbs as its limbs. And, and this creature has has no, uh, nothing like arms at all. Uh, so if, if, you're, if you're trying to get this in your head, just, you know, stop if you have a chance, look up some images of the moa, of its skeletal remains, and also also reconstructions of what it would have looked like, and just focus on the fact that it has no vestigial wings. It's just so wonderfully weird. Now, I know you said it, it looks huggable, and I sort of agree, but I do want to stress, if they actually recreate these things and bring them back from extinction, do not try to hug them. No, no. That's, we, a, that's a very bad idea. Right. Yeah, we discussed uh, how potentially lethal uh, the cassowary is, and the same can be said of the ostrich. So uh, I think without a doubt, the moa could do some serious damage if you're still around to kick you. 
Oh, and by the way, if you if you want to look up some images of the MOA I, uh, or just get additional information about them, I highly recommend checking out New Zealand Birds Online, created by ornithologist Colin uh, Miskelly. It's a great uh, it's it's great. It's one of the sources we use for these three episodes, uh, and you'll find uh, you'll find it at nzbirdsonline.org.nz. And if you go to the search bar and you type in MOA, you'll get pictures of all nine varieties, uh, illustrations of all uh, nine varieties of MOA. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting about the MOA is we often tend to think, okay, where there are large land-dwelling animals, they often tend to be few in number, right? Mm-hmm. But the but for a long time, New Zealand was kind of the land of the MOA, right? Yeah, yeah. The MOA were New Zealand's dominant land vertebrates and dominant herbivores. So they basically went around, went around consuming twigs, leaves, flowers, seeds, and berries uh, from a wide variety of trees, shrubs, and vines. Uh, they also ate um, uh, mushrooms, which we'll get into a little later, uh, they were able to process a highly uh, fibrous diet due in part to large gizzard stones and a tough beak. Mm. So I bet those gizzard stones were involved in some great curses. <laughs> Probably so. Excellent magical items. Um, but, but yeah, so they're, they're basically, every, again, nine different varieties, like basically adapting over time to the different environments of New Zealand. And uh, they, they laid enormous eggs uh, and are suspected to have produced, I think, one or two per breeding season. And the incubation period was likely longer than two months. So big birds, big eggs, um, uh, more of a time investment in a limited number of eggs, and the male likely incubated the eggs as this is what is seen in extant ratites. Hmm, I don't think I knew that. Yeah. Now, just because it was the dominant land organism doesn't mean it was completely unopposed, that it was off the predation uh, hook, because again, this is the world of birds, and and when you think of birds, you probably think of a number of different flesh-eating varieties. And so the MOA, too, had to contend with a mighty avian predator, and that predator is the largest eagle to ever live. Right. So at this point, I want to briefly come to one of our favorite subjects, which is monsters. No, oh, yes. Why are there so many monster movies about giant spiders but not about giant lions? Uh, <laughs> Well, the lion is already large enough, right? Yeah, exactly. So I've got a hypothesis here. I I think humans, whether through instinct or learning or a combination of both, do a lot of intuitive phylogenetic sorting of predatory threat imagery. So the idea of a large cat that kills and eats you is, in fact, terrifying, but it's not especially unusual. In, In the terms we've talked about on the show before, in the terms of cognitive science of religion, it's not even minimally counterintuitive. It's just sort of a fact of nature. So it would be terrifying if you were really faced with it, but it's also not a particularly arresting image in the memory in that it doesn't stand out. I mean, I'm sure it would be a memory if it actually happened to you. Right. But probably not in terms of fictional storytelling compared to something like a giant spider. A large man-eating spider is definitely counterintuitive. It's not something found in nature. And because the image is unusual, it sticks in the mind and captivates our fear. And and I've been thinking about this for a while. Like the idea idea of a human being eaten by an invertebrate like an insect or an arachnid not only feels scary, it feels perverse. It violates the natural order. In biblical terms, I think this is what would be called an abomination. 
And so I think our, our brains do this kind of unconscious threat math a lot. We sort potential threats from animals or organisms more generally by morphology or body shape, uh, which is a simple way of sorting them along evolutionary relationships. Large carnivorous mammal shapes are natural predators. They are genuinely threatening in reality, but less captivating of the terrified imagination. And I think the same goes for large reptilian shapes like crocodiles or sharks or whatever. But here's another phylogenetic or morphological branch of potential threats. How about birds? I think we intuitively sort birds into the non-predator pile, right? Like we prey on birds. They don't prey on us. Right. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, now to come back to the, the cassowary and the ostrich, like you know, clearly these are both potentially dangerous animals that they're encountered in the wild, but they are, you know, they're kind of exceptions from the rule. They are a rather different breed of bird than the, the sort of bird that most of us are going to encounter on a daily basis. Right. And they wouldn't be trying to hunt us. Like right. if we encountered one, uh, you know, a cassowary in the wild and it was being aggressive, that would probably be it, you know, from its point of view, it's def- acting in defense. Right. Now, if we were to travel in time back to the age of the terror birds and the demon ducks. Oh, yeah. And that would be a little, it would be a different scenario. Yeah, but I would say that that age might go a lot, it might come a lot more recently into history mm-hmm. than we would think. Uh, so maybe this this intuitive sorting about birds is one of the main reasons movies that use dinosaurs as monsters resist putting feathers on them, right? Even though many predatory dinosaurs probably had feathers, we associate feathers with birds and birds are generally not thought of as scary. Right. Yeah. When, for instance, when think of all the times feathers are used for comedic effect, right? Yeah. Like a, a feather pillow, feathers, uh, uh, you know, stuck to a person after you know something sticky has uh, has has gotten on them. That sort of thing. Yeah, and so there's that. But then on the other hand, pretty much in exactly the opposite direction of what I just said. We want to think again about the counterintuitive thing. A lot of times monsters are great because they violate these categories. Mm. You know, no spider actually preys on us in the wild, but we love the giant killer spider idea. That sticks in the memory. There are a lot of stories about it. And there are stories of giant predatory birds that do show up in monster mythology all around the world. There's the rock, the cockatrice, uh, the winged Anzu from uh, Sumerian and Babylonian myth, like – uh, do you remember how in Bandersnatch it says that the demon Pax is the thief of destiny? Oh, yes. The humanoid bird monster Anzu is the original thief of destiny. Do you know about the story? Oh, no. So in this uh, – there's this ancient Akkadian epic where Anzu, the bird – the humanoid bird monster – steals something called the Tablet of Destiny from the King of the Gods. And the Tablet of Destiny is kind of like this great law book that's sort of a – like the permanent record of everybody. It's got like all of their – you know, I don't know, all their law breaking or whatever written down in it. And possessing this document, this tablet – gives you the power to rule the world. And so when Anzu, the bird monster, steals it, he has to be destroyed, I think, by Marduk. Well, that's what Marduk's for. Right. That's that's pretty much his job. I mean, Marduk, it's funny, Marduk is the hero of the story, but in in my feeling, Marduk's also, he's often kind of the party pooper. Like, yeah. there's a great monster getting up to no good, and then Marduk comes in and just puts a lid on everything. Yeah, he's the humanoid uh, figure that, uh, that that gets rid of the interesting characters. He's like the assistant principal that comes in and stops the party. Yeah. 
Um, but so I think the bird as man-eater story, it does pass the minimally counterintuitive test for mythological resilience. If a giant hawk could swoop down from the sky and bite your head off, that image, that makes a good story. That would stick in your memory. Um, so I'm not sure how exactly that goes in conflict with the fact that like people won't put feathers on dinosaurs in movies because they're not scary enough. Maybe these th- two things are just both true and in competition with each other. Like the feathered monster has a cognitive advantage because... Because it's more counterintuitive, stands out in memory, but the scaly monster has a cognitive advantage because its physical features are more naturally prone to activate our threat responses. I don't know what you think's going on there, but I, I, as we, we love to think about monsters, and I yeah. think that tension is interesting. Yeah, and, and again, we're talking about the idea of monstrous birds here, not just birds perceived as a threat, because certainly there are people that are afraid of birds or a little wigged out by birds when they're close to them. Sure. Uh, certainly Hitchcock's The Birds uh, managed to strike a, a nerve with people. Uh, but yeah, the idea of a, of a bird being large enough to, to not just like pester you uh, or, to, uh, or to certainly in a large number attack you, but like a single-handedly take you out and consume you. To prey on you, yeah. to, to hunt you as if you were its dinner. Yeah. Uh, now, I want to talk for a moment about a very important fossil in physical anthropology, which is a fossil skull that is between two and three million years old. I think last time I saw the dating, it was like 2.8 million years old, they thought. Uh, it was unearthed from a quarry in South Africa in 1924 in a place called Tong, and it is the skull of a young hominid now known to be from the extinct human relative Australopithecus africanus. Uh, And note that this is a different species from Australopithecus afarensis, which is the species to which the famous Lucy skeleton belonged. Uh, So this africanus skull is known as the Tong child. And evidence indicates that this hominid died when it was about three years old. And we actually have a lot of evidence now indicating exactly what happened when it died, how its death came about, just a warning, this is a kind of sad and grisly story, but also biologically fascinating. So the Tong child skull has puncture marks in the bone at the bottom of the eye sockets. And these puncture marks are similar to the marks made on other mammals like monkeys when eagles attack them today. Mm. Uh, Also, the skull was found in a soil bed along with eggshell fragments as well as the bones of many other small animals including rodents, lizards, juvenile antelopes, and baboons. And a lot of these other bones also show damage that looks like it could have been caused by the beaks and talons of a large eagle. The South African paleontologist Lee Berger has argued that it was an eagle that killed this child. Uh, he argued for the eagle predation hypothesis, uh, for example, in, in a short communication I was reading to the journal, the American Journal of Physical Anthropology in 2006, writing that, quote, re-examination of the Tong juvenile hominin specimen, the type specimen of Australopithecus africanus, reveals previously undescribed damage to the orbital floors that is nearly identical to that seen in the crania of monkeys preyed upon by crowned hawk eagles. And Berger argued that this evidence, along with the strange collection of other animal bones at the site of the Tong child's discovery, quote, strongly supports the hypothesis that a bird of prey was an accumulating agent at Tong and that the Tong child itself was a victim of a bird of prey. I think this is an example of how scientific writing so often has a way of stating things that is like 
facially abstract bordering on euphemistic but so much so that it actually sounds more horrifying <laughs> so this bird of prey millions of years ago was not a bone collector but an accumulating agent well that, that makes it look it sound like it was working for some dark other force right yeah now, if this hypothesis about the Taung child is correct, uh, and from what I read, I, I think it probably is, uh, we don't know for sure exactly what kind of bird killed the child. But the paper I was just quoting from draws attention to the similarities uh, between the marks on the fossil skull and the wounds left by a modern bird of prey that still exists today called the crowned hawk eagle or Stephanoetus coronatus, uh, also just known as the crowned eagle. This is a truly frightening and magnificent bird. Uh, so it lives throughout central, southern, and eastern Africa, mostly inhabiting like uh, mountains and forests, rain forests, places with tall trees, also sometimes found in the savannas. These eagles can weigh up to 10 pounds uh, or about 5 kilograms with a wingspan of up to 6 feet or about 180 centimeters. They're large. They're not the largest eagle. Uh, the females are generally larger than the males, and the crowned eagle gets its name from a crest of feathers on the head. Sometimes it's got feathers sticking straight up, but sometimes it looks just like a bulging of the feathers toward the back of the head mm -hmm. and looks a little bit like Gary Oldman's weird vampire bun head from the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. <laughs> it does really, yeah. Uh, do, do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And plus, uh, the spirit of, uh, of, of the two are closely linked here. Yes, I imagine this eagle also loves the children of the night. Because, like Dracula, this bird is an astonishingly strong hunter. Uh, they've been known to kill prey more than four times their size. And I think this is, this is key, too, because certainly, even in an urban environment like Atlanta, we see vultures and hawks uh, fairly common. Now, hawks, yeah. uh, especially, you see them around a lot because there's a lot of a lot of creatures for them to prey on. We went into the the urban advantages of the hawk in our uh, uh, one of our previous episodes. Oh yeah, well, uh, we talked with Jason Ward yeah. about the uh, about the peregrine falcon and yeah. its uh, urban hunting uh, methods, where it'll sit up on top of a building and wait for its prey birds to fly underneath, and then it dive bombs them from above. But generally, you think about a, a bird like this grabbing uh, a bird of this nature grabbing something like maybe a salmon, maybe it grabs a squirrel, uh, maybe it even gets a small dog. But you don't think about them grabbing something four times their size. Right. Now, if they grab something four times their size, they're not going to be able to carry it away. But they can totally kill this thing and either eat it where it falls or take it apart and take pieces with them. Uh, so when attacking large prey, the p predatory strategy of the crowned eagle often involves it'll it'll involve swooping down from above and then using their meaty legs and fearsome hind talons to break the prey animal's spine when they make contact uh, they, they hunt a diverse range of prey including monkeys antelopes and other small mammals and lizards uh, and they've like I was saying, two basic feasting strategies. Once they've got a, a prey animal dead, if it's small enough, they'll try to carry it with them up to a safe treetop to eat at their leisure. Mm -hmm. uh, if the prey is too large to carry, they will either eat it where they have killed it, or sometimes they'll they'll, they'll tear you know chunks of it off. They'll tear off a head or te tear off an arm or something and take it away with them one piece at a time. 
another interesting fact about them, the, the crowned hawk eagle sometimes uh, – well, so they generally lay one or two eggs per nest brood. And if there are two eggs, when the eggs hatch, the larger of the two chicks usually kills its sibling. Uh, the parents are known to guard their newborn chicks very ferociously. You know, They violently repel encroaching animals. And so you might have a question, well, would these powerful hunters that can kill animals much larger than themselves, would they be able to attack humans today? Uh, possibly. But if so, it, it is rare. I, I don't want to you know, get you in the idea that you should be afraid of or demonize these birds. But there are a few accounts of crowned eagles attacking children. The accounts are mostly older. It was kind of hard for me to tell how much stock we should mm. put in them. But the, such a claim of crowned eagle attacks on humans does not at all seem to be unheard of. And they do regularly attack monkeys, which, of course, are shaped a lot like us. And small human children would be within the size range of their prey. Remember, they can attack prey more than four times their size, so they can attack animals that are maybe like 45 pounds or 20 kilograms. Again, be in awe of their predatory strengths. I don't mean to demonize these animals because I, I, I know their habitats are threatened now and their, right. and their numbers are declining. And But in general, a small child is likely to, to flip certain switches in a, in a sizable predator that might normally not, not switch on when they see a fully grown human. Oh, well, yeah, I don't know if you've ever looked up those videos on the internet of uh, small children against the glass in like lion enclosures at a zoo. Oh, I mean, I've, I've taken my son when he was smaller. I remember taking him to uh, uh, some sort of a, a zoo-like uh, uh, place. Uh, it was somewhere out in uh, Arizona, I think. Maybe it was Arizona, even. Uh, but uh, but when we were there, it's like you, there was a one part where we were walking out, and there were these cages, and they had some uh, large predatory cats. Mm-hmm. And you can just see them. Like there's a change in the way they are viewing their surroundings. There's a change in their body language. You can you can tell that they're you know even if they're not actively hunting your child, they are reacting to it uh, as if it is potential food. Yes. I mean, the same way that the human instinct is activated by a small child, you know, most adult humans would see a small child and want to say, is that child okay? You know, you want to take care of them. Right. The, the predator, the predator says, sees is that child lunch? Delicious. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the, looks very small, very weak, easy, easy kill. Right. Not to shame any of these predators. That's just, that's just the, the coating. That's the basic uh, uh, way of the tooth and claw there. Right. So you've got these uh, claims of modern eagle attacks on, on human children, but if these claims are generally correct, even then it does appear to be a kind of unusual thing to happen, you know, something that just happens here and there. Was there ever a predatory bird that would have had humans more firmly within its prey buffet, but, you know, even larger, even more diverse in the kinds of prey it would seek out? Ah, And that brings us back to New Zealand uh, and the age of the moa. And the moa's primary um, enemy, its uh, its primary predator, the Haas eagle. So the Maori people of New Zealand have had legends of gigantic birds. Uh, I've, apparently, there are several different legends of gigantic birds that have been linked somewhat to real bird species. The two different legendary bird monsters that I was reading about from the Maori were the uh, Te Hokioi or the Puakai. But there may be other legends that sort of fit into this mix as well. Right. And uh, and, and real quick, I want to again remind everyone that the Maori 
came to New Zealand less than a thousand years ago. So we're talking um, roughly 1300 CE. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll get more into uh, in, into the history of the Maori and their, their coming to New Zealand and their eventual uh, interaction with other human beings uh, in, our, in our second episode. But uh, j- just to remind everybody about the time frame we're talking here. So this, this giant bird monster of Maori legend, it's a huge bird with black and white feathers. It's got a red crest and yellow-green coloring on the tips of its wings. It was uh, believed in some legends to have raced the hawk to the heavens and was known in other some legends as a man-eater. It's not only a feature of Maori oral tradition, but it's, uh, its terrifying frame appears in archaic rock carvings of the area. And many paleontologists now believe that the uh, that this animal, the, the Te Hokioi or the uh, Puakai, is not purely fictional, mythical uh, as a monster like the Anzu. It may be the cultural memory of this real giant predatory bird of New Zealand known as the Host's eagle or Harpagornus mori, uh, which, again, would have been the predator that preyed on the moa. Because, again, less than a thousand years ago when the Maori arrived, when the archaic Maori rev- arrived in New Zealand, they would have encountered uh, the, the nine species of moa. They would have encountered Host's eagle in its uh, predation of the moa. Like, all, this was the world, this unique environment was uh, in full swing when they first arrived. Yeah. Host's eagle was a beast. I think if we saw it, we would be in awe. (laughs) It could weigh up to 15 kilograms, which is about 33 pounds. The female might have had a wingspan of up to three meters or almost 10 feet, like other birds of prey often. uh, The the female was larger than the male. Uh, Remember that the most powerful predatory bird in the world today, not the largest, but the the most powerful hunter, the crowned eagle, weighs up to only about 10 pounds or about five kilograms. This is like three times bigger. (laughs) Wow. And with their size and hunting power, the host's eagle could and did regularly take down Moa as prey. Think about how amazing this is given the size of the moa. What, what were we saying about the size of the moa earlier? Oh, we talked about 10 to 12 feet with their uh, with their heads stretched out. Yeah. I mean, even the even the bush moa was like four and a half feet tall. Yeah, you know, to, like 500 pounds. Yeah. yeah. The little Bushamoa, yeah, yeah, I'm sure they were they were really at a loss here. <laughs> so a predatory encounter might have involved waiting at say a treetop near a water source, and then waiting for a moa to come out and take a drink. And the host's eagle could then swoop down at the moa at 80 kilometers per hour, or about 50 miles per hour. Again, think of something that weighs 40 pounds hitting you at about 50 miles per hour. Some forensic analysis of the bones of the host's eagle. I know there was some analysis done through CAT scans and things. Uh, This shows that the eagle's body was, by design, able to absorb shocks from high-impact speed. Mm -hmm. Um, So at the impact, the predator comes in talons out, and it has talons that could penetrate bone. So after killing the moa or the other large prey bird, the eagle could usually take its time eating the kill on the spot because there were not large mammalian predators to worry about coming along because this is New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've also heard it, heard it described that the talons of Haas the eagle were about the size of a tiger's claws. Like yes. That's how big they were. Yes. Uh, so I was reading an article in The Independent that interviewed Paul Schofield, uh, curator of vertebrate zoology at the Canterbury Museum. Uh, this was in 2009. And Schofield is also the author of uh, one of the papers that was doing the forensic analysis of the uh, Hostegel skeleton. 
And uh, also, by the way, the Canterbury Museum is the same place where Alan Kurnow saw the Moa skeleton that he writes the oh, poem about. There you go. Uh, but so Schofield says, quote, it was certainly capable of swooping down and taking a child. <laughs> they, ha- they had the ability to not only strike with their talons, but to close the talons and put them through quite solid objects such as a pelvis. It was designed as a killing machine. So think about it. So it comes in with the claws extended, can hit you at high speed with amazing force and and then latch on with the claws to cut through flesh. And this would, of course, leave you bleeding and all of that. And uh, Schofield said, Haas's eagle wasn't just the equivalent of a giant predatory bird. It was the equivalent of a lion. Wow. Yeah, a lion of the air. Uh, Again, it's just a—it's like an order of magnitude beyond uh, any kind of uh, flying predatory bird that we uh, we've become accustomed to in our our world today. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think like a like a griffin. You know, like this this is a a flying. It's like a flying big cat. If a leopard could fly. Yeah. So again, the Maori arrive. They encounter this world and. Uh, you know, and we'll discuss the details of this later. But basically, the the moa would last scarcely more than a century. After that, they were they were rather swiftly eradicated by human beings, and therefore, Haas Eagle, since it depended on the moa for food, it went away as well. But there would have been time there. So there was there was there was a, a period of time in Maori history for their for the archaic Maori and for the uh, the moa hunting Maori for for them to have their children picked off by this terrifying bird, this terrifying predator of the sky. It's hard to imagine. Yeah, but I just did. Well, the, I mean, the, the it, terrifying pre- images in Predators of the land are bad enough. Mm-hmm. When they can come from above, I don't know what, that just seems like that would, that would entail a, a whole reordering of the way you view, you know, uh, danger and safety in the world. Yeah, because you generally think the sky, at least, is, is safe. Yeah, don't I mean, need to look that way. Right. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back for more discussions of the Mighty Moa. All right, we're back. So one question that comes up, or we're imagining this this clash between these enormous moa and this enormous eagle. Yeah, clash of the giant birds. Yeah, so I was wondering, well, well how does how would a giant moa defend itself? You know, like, what kind of fight could it put up? Uh, so we already mentioned how if we look to extant to ratites, we look to the ostrich, we look to the cassowary, we see excellent examples of just how ferocious a kick from one of these creatures would be. Mm-hmm. But then you start imagining, so if you're imagining, say, Say an unarmed human uh, coming up and trying to start uh, start a fight with, say, an ostrich or cassowary or perhaps a moa. That's not a good idea. Yeah, you can imagine how that's going to go, uh, kick wise, um, you know, or or any type of uh, land predator trying to mess with one of these these creatures. But if something is coming from above. Like it, it, it does seem, and I couldn't find a lot of sources on this about like what the the moa's defensive capabilities would have would have been. But if it certainly if it had trouble kicking that high, what could it do if something was attacking its back? You know, it could it could peck at it. It could use its beak certainly. Um, maybe, uh, and this is just me guessing. I'm thinking maybe it could whip it with its neck a little bit. That is mm. that is the strategy we see with giraffes. You know, there's there's footage of giraffes fighting each other with using their neck is these broad whips and certainly the cat certainly the moa's um, uh, neck was uh, was long and tough uh, but i don't know if, if it could actually have used it effectively uh, certainly against host eagle which again is this 
this lion of the sky attacking it with enormous talons and perhaps making pretty short work of it if it got the drop. Well, yeah, if you're coming at a large bird like the moa from below, I mean, obviously that that's not the place you want to be. But what does it do on its back? I mean, it seems like the perfect place to prey on it. And you can make wounds on the back of a large bird like this that is it's exposed. And, you know, if you get the talons in there and get out, even if you don't break its back when you first hit, uh, probably just like what bleeds to death. It sits there and drowns in its own blood. Yeah. So it, it seems like a case where the, the moa was just particularly vulnerable to Haas eagle. But at the same time, it means Haas eagle was particularly dependent upon the moa. Like they were, they were locked in this in this, well, you can say eternal struggle. I guess if you want to get, be dramatic about it, but really an eternal balance until uh, until this new force, this new terror, came to unbalance that uh, that equation. Yeah, well, it's. Um I mean, it's weird to think about because, like, when you see a predator chasing prey in nature, I think naturally most of our sympathies are with the prey animal. And Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Like, you know, if you were to see one person trying to hurt another person, your sympathies are with the victim. But in in nature – you could think about it as a, as a kind of balanced thing because the predator is also try, it's just trying to survive. It is fighting starvation every every day in the same way that the prey animal is fighting the predator that's trying to kill it. Right. And again, we, we already mentioned, we'll get into some of the genetic data on this in the next episode, but uh, the moa was highly successful and it was spread all over New Zealand. So, uh, you know, it was a situation where it could support a dominant predator like this. Their numbers were such that the, the predator was ultimately playing an important role mm-hmm. in supporting a, a healthy moa population. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, one thing I've read is that the hostile probably would have been very few in number, mm-hmm. right? Like most apex predators are, right? right? You know, they, they tend to be, there needs to be many fewer of them than there are of the prey animals or the, uh, or the ecosystem can't sustain itself. Now, it's, it's easy to grasp why the extinction of the moa came hand in hand with the extinction of, uh, of the great uh, Haas eagle. But extinction impacts a wide variety of species. And when you, have, when you have such an established creature as the nine moa species, you have a lot of organisms that have come to depend upon them. So, you know, you're talking about bacteria, parasites, scavengers, predators, but also whatever plants and fungi have come to depend on their feeding habits to propagate. And so I ran across uh, an interesting study that got into uh, uh, some of this. In 2018, researchers from the University of Adelaide's Australian Center for Ancient DNA, or ACAD, published a study in the journal uh, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences about the contents of dried dung from four varieties of giant moa. Thank God we're getting into some coprolites. Yeah, I mean, we can, you can learn a lot from copper, coprolites. Uh, you know, they're highly useful in uncovering, the, especially in this case, the genetic records of diet, pathogens, and even the behavior of the creatures in question. So the researchers here found that the, the moa consumed a wide variety of mushrooms and fungi, including species that are critical for New Zealand's beach forests. And they were, they were very interested, the researchers were very interested in exploring 
the prior um, but unproven hypothesis that many New Zealand fungi with bright colored fruiting bodies are adapted for dispersal by native ground dwelling birds. Hmm. Now, this couldn't really be tested because all the moa are extinct, uh, but uh, but this gave them a chance to sort of test to explore it a little bit, right? Okay. So, in general, they found confirmation uh, regarding uh, diet in a few moa species. So, they found that the little bush moa, for instance, which uh, would have resided in the rainforest, fed mostly on fibrous forest vegetation. Upland moa and giant moa were widespread uh, dietary generalists, with upland moa populating the higher altitudes. So they would have eaten a, you know, a wider variety of things. But the mushroom contents of the moa dung uh, certainly contained plant symbiotic fungi that the wide-ranging moa would have spread as they ranged, grazed, and pooped. According to lead author Alex Boast, uh, then-PhD student at uh, Lancare Research, quote, Worryingly, introduced mammals which consume these mushrooms don't appear to produce fertile spores, so this critical ecosystem function of the giant birds has been lost with serious implications for the long-term health of New Zealand's beach forests. Uh, so what does that mean that um – the, the mushrooms passing through the digestive system of the birds would have still been reproductively viable. Right. But going through mammal digestive systems, they're not. Right. The mammals that have come in to fill that ecological niche that was left by the, uh, by the now extinct moa, like they'll eat the same mushrooms. Uh, perhaps they'll even spread them. Uh, they'll even you know, travel uh, you know, to decent distances. But the spores they leave behind are not viable. They're not able to actually uh, fulfill the role that the moa uh, fulfilled in spreading those spores. And again, mm. those, the, the mushrooms uh, um, have this uh, crucial relationship with uh, with the trees of the beach forest, so um, this is a, again. I think it's just a, it's a wonderful example of um, of the cascading effects of extinction. They also found evidence of parasites in those coprolites. Uh, they found a quote surprising diversity of parasites, many completely new to science. Oh boy! And these are these are largely parasites that would have been exclusive to the moa uh, and or the moa species in question that just went extinct with their hosts. And these these included, uh, for instance, various types of uh, nematodes. Uh, so uh, you know, again, you you. You, you can't take a species out of the uh, out of the game without impacting numerous other species as well. And it's certainly going to be the case when you have such a firmly established and uh, and dominant species as the moa of New Zealand. I mourn for the moa. Yeah, uh, it, it's hard not to. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I do want to stress that that, that uh, and we'll get more into the relationship between the moa and the Maori people in our next episode. But it is crucial not to not to feel an, an, a special amount of shame uh, over uh, over the Maori in this situation. Because again, any time human beings have come into contact with new ecosystems, they have brought extinction with them. Yeah, uh, we change everywhere we go. Yeah, and that's that is just that is the nature of human beings. Um, you know, no, no matter where they go, no matter what the time period, uh, we, we did a previous episode where we talked about Roman extinctions just yeah. brought on by the spread of Roman civilization. Um, and we previously mentioned the elephant bird of Madagascar, similar situation. Uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was doing really well. Then humans came and that spelled its doom. Now, the story of that doom in the case of the, the Moa uh, is something we're going to get more into in our next episode, though. 
You know, I just thought of another uh, thing from Madagascar. I believe I was just reading earlier today that a an extinct relative of the crowned eagle of Africa oh, yes? uh, was the, the Madagascar crowned eagle. Oh. But it's gone because when humans came to Madagascar, they hunted its primary prey animal, the giant lemur, to extinction. Wow. And then it had no prey anymore. There you go. All right. So, uh, so I, we just keep doing it, folks. Yeah, we, we just keep doing it. And, yes, some some amazing uh, creatures have been lost along the way. But I tell you, the moa, it uh, – I'm just really impressed with this animal. I think it is my, uh, my it is my, my new spirit animal. For these trying times we live in, uh, I, will, um, I will ease myself into the imagined arms of the moa. It has no arms. It has no wings. But there's something about its nature that I can, uh, I can cuddle up with and, uh, and find comfort in. You're going to become the Lorax of the Radites. <laughs> You're going to go on a quest where you want people to stop using the ostrich as the example animal of like uh, cowardice and ignorance. <laughs> I'm going to have to, I need to get out of the house and go look at some Radites this, uh, this weekend. There is a, there's an emu that lives fairly close to my house. Really? Yeah. Uh, uh, what's its name? Big Lou. Big Lou the emu. I think I may have to go feed Big Lou this weekend. Okay. I don't think I know about Big Lou. Oh, well, I'll tell you about it uh, when we go up the air okay. so you can find Big Lou for yourself. All right. In the meantime, uh, go and check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. There are a bunch of them. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, you can also find us by going to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this show. Wherever you get the show, just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.